Uh, welcome once again, Trinity Grace. I'm glad you're here, especially if you're a guest this morning. Many of you will know that during the month of December leading up to Christmas, we've been looking at passages in the book of Isaiah known as the Servant Songs. And Isaiah is a prophet who wrote to God's people about 750 years before the birth of Jesus. And it's important to know some context as we jump into this book. God's people at this point had been forcibly removed from their land and their homes by the country of Babylon. And they were taken away by Babylon to live in slavery to this foreign country. And at the time that Isaiah writes, specifically in the passage we're going to read this morning, God's people would have been wondering where God was. Was there a reason for why they'd been taken into slavery by another country? And what was the plan going forward? There were lots of questions in their minds. They were experiencing lots of uncertainty. Their lives were characterized by disappointment and sorrow in many ways. And it's against this backdrop that Isaiah writes to give, uh, to give God's people hope. And toward the end of his letter, Isaiah turns to the theme of comfort. He's seeking to bring comfort and consolation to God's people who are unsure about life and unsure about God's plan for them. And it's in this context of comfort that Isaiah begins to speak of a mysterious figure. One he calls the servant of the Lord specifically in chapters 42 to 52 of his letter. And this servant is depicted as one who will one day soon come and act on behalf of God's people to bring them justice and renewal. This servant is going to be one who makes all things right for God's people. And it's interesting that Isaiah never gives this servant a name. He simply gives us a sketch or an outline of a person who's one day soon going to come and deliver God's people. And now, you and I living on the other side of Christ's life, on the other side of the cross, we know that the servant Isaiah speaks of has visited God's people in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the servant that Isaiah alludes to throughout his letter. He is the servant who has come to rescue us from slavery to sin. He's the servant who's come to make all things right. He's the servant who accomplishes the mission of blessing the entire world. And it's this servant that we celebrate coming as a child this Christmas season. And we get another chance to read about him described 700 years before his birth in Isaiah's third servant song. You follow along as I read from Isaiah chapter 50, beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, it's for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I can't redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, my, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 
but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us before we consider it this morning. Lord, we're here this morning because we believe that you are able to speak to us through your word. And we are a group of people who need you to speak. And so we pray this morning that you would open our ears, just as you open the ears of your servant, Jesus, to hear the words that you want us to hear. Bring encouragement this morning as we see the beauty of Jesus, our great servant. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we pick up in our passage this morning, it's important to recognize that verses 1 through 3 are a kind of introduction to the servant song, which actually begins in verse 4 and lasts through verse 9. And these first three verses of Isaiah 50 really paint a picture of where Israel was at the time that Isaiah wrote to them. Remember, they're in subjection to Babylon, living in exile under the thumb of a pagan country who had come and taken them away from their land, away from their homes, and placed them in a faraway place. And these people, God's people at this point in time, they're being worn out by the decisions that they've made. They're being worn out by the sin that's within them and the sin that's pressing in from without them. They're beaten down by their bad choices. Israel is being spread thin here, both physically and spiritually. They're in a place they never imagined they would be, surrounded by darkness and hopelessness in many ways, unable to help themselves. And it's against this backdrop that we see God speaking to them in verses 1 through 3. And he begins by asking them some rather ridiculous questions. In verse 1, he asks, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? In this verse, we actually see the Lord's being facetious, listing potential reasons for why Israel finds themselves in such a desperate situation. God asks, is it because I divorced you? Or is it because I couldn't afford to keep you and had to pay my creditor? Or is it because I'm not powerful enough that you find yourself in the predicament that you're in? And at the end of verse 1, we see the answer to these rhetorical questions. Of course not. God reminds his people that it's because of their iniquities, their transgression. It was because they turned away from God and went their own way that they find themselves in such a bad situation. The reason God's people find themselves in a hard place full of weariness and beaten down is because of their own choices. Not because of any cooling affection or lack of power on God's part. And instead of calling out to God for rescue, they make a choice to remain where they're at. Full of weariness, because of their choices, stretched thin, both physically and spiritually, because of their stubbornness. And it reminds me of a part of the Fellowship of the Ring. Lord of the Rings, the first book, which we've been reading with our kids over the past few months. And there's a part at the very beginning of the book where Bilbo is about to give up the ring. He's going to give it to Frodo so that he can take it and destroy it. Bilbo just celebrated his 111th birthday, and he's having a conversation with the wizard Gandalf. 
And at one point he says this to Gandalf after Gandalf asks how he's doing. He says, I'm old Gandalf. I don't look it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my heart of hearts. Well preserved indeed. Why I feel all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean. Like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. That can't be right. I need a change or something. If we're honest this morning, that's how we often feel ourselves. We feel thin, sort of stretched. Another word for this would be weariness. We're generally a group of people that could be characterized with the word weariness. And weary is a word that can mean fainting under life's demands. Fainting under life's demands. And when you think about it, our lives, when you think about them, there's lots that makes us weary, that beats us down, that makes us tired and faint. The pains of daily life weary us. Ongoing relational conflict, pervasive loneliness, battling diseases, job loss, making ends meet at the end of the month with financial anxieties, unbelief itself, depression, unwanted singleness. All of these things weary us. We get weary when we think of embarrassing failures in our life. We grow weary when we think of the future. We grow weary when we face the uncertainty of infertility. We feel beaten down by a spouse's rejection. We feel tired when we experience a child's rebellion. We grow weary when we're frustrated with the fact that we can never seem to change. With so many things to worry about, with so many things calling for our attention, with our many failures and our poor choices in mind, is it any wonder that we're beaten down and tired? Like Israel in verses 1 through 3 in many ways, it's our own choices that have led us into weariness, to being worn out and discouraged, Truth be told, God has always been there with power, inviting us to come back and choose him over the fleeting pleasures of sin, but we would have none of it. Instead, we've chosen to go our own way into more and more weariness. And it's into this weariness that we experience that we see the servant of the Lord entering in. In fact, in verses 4 through 9, we hear the servant himself cutting through our weariness. These verses take the form of soliloquy or the servant speaking his thoughts out loud. But there's a hint that we're meant to overhear him and we're meant to learn from him to embrace his work for us and to learn to walk in the paths that he walks. We who are weary are meant to hear remembering that the servant doesn't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. These words of the servant are, those who are, are for those who are tired and weary, those who are exhausted, for those like you and me. So in our passage, we see that even though we've offended God, he still wants to call us back to himself through his servant. God deeply wants his people to be saved from their weariness and rescued from their poor decisions. But how will that happen? How is God going to do this? Well, he's going to do it through the obedience of his servant. And we see three characteristics about the servant's obedience in this passage. We see a connected servant, we see a suffering servant, and we see a confident servant. First, let's spend a few minutes looking at the connected servant who comes to rescue us from our weariness. 
The first thing we see as the servant speaks is that he is deeply connected to his father. We see this in verses four and five, where the servant says, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. We see from these verses that the servant is able to accomplish his mission of renewal and blessing in this world because he stays close to the Lord. He himself has been taught by the Lord. The servant has an attentiveness to God, which allows him to move out in effective ministry. And we see a great definition of ministry for us in this passage in verse 4. We could say that ministry at the baseline is the ability to sustain those who are weary with a word. It's hard to think of a better definition of ministry than that. Sustaining those who are weary with a word. The idea of listening to the Lord is a really big deal in these two verses. And this listening is exactly what Israel, the country, failed to do. At least 394 times in the Old Testament, God is seen as coming to us and speaking to us. God wants to speak to his people and he wanted them to be good listeners. But God's people had a hearing problem and it was their undoing. And thankfully, the servant who's given the task of rescuing God's people, thankfully, he was a good listener. We see this time and time again in the ministry of Jesus, if you think about it, that he was one who constantly listened to his father. Through the Gospels, we see descriptions of Jesus like a, what we read in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. It says, But now even more the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. But while the crowds were waiting... While many people likely needed to be healed and ministered to and hear the word of God, we see that Jesus intentionally carves out time to open his ears. To hear as one who is taught. To have his own personal time with God the Father. So that he might be able to move back out into ministry so that he could sustain the weary with a word. I love how Paul Miller describes Jesus in his book, The Praying Life, when he says, Jesus is without question the most dependent human being who ever lived. Because he can't do life on his own, he prays and he prays and he prays. Jesus is one who was taught. He awoke each morning to hear a word from God. And this really highlights the humanity of Jesus. Okay, we know in his divinity, he did not need to be taught anything. He was fully powerful, fully capable, but in his humanity, him taking on our flesh, he was one who had to learn. He had to experience God the Father. He had to be taught in order to sustain those who are weary. Jesus woke each morning to open his ears to receive a word from God so that he might teach people. And if Jesus had to do this, what about you and me? had a seminary professor who would talk about the how much more hermeneutic. 
the how much more hermeneutic when looking at the life of Jesus. He would say, if Jesus found strength and vitality through opening his ears and hearing God's words on a daily consistent basis, how much more do we need the same thing? How much more do we need the same thing if we're going to move out and minister to others? I love how Mark Buchanan puts it in his book, The Rest of God, when he says this, if people are listening to you, who are you stopping to listen to? All our authority is derived. Either God gives us words or we're only giving our opinions. Our speaking comes out of our listening. What we say comes from what we hear. Look, even Jesus lived by this principle of connection to God. And if he had to do it, how much more do we need to stay closely connected to the Father so that we might have words to speak, so that we might be able to sustain those who are weary with a word? I like how Ray Ortland, what he had to say about this sustaining ministry of the servant in his commentary on Isaiah. This is what he says. It's not printed for you in your bulletin. You'll have to listen. A sustaining ministry, a gospel ministry, requires more thought, more study, more insight than a condemning ministry. A finger-pointing ministry is easy. Moralism is the default setting of our minds. But it takes divine wisdom to understand God's grace in a new way so that we can sustain weary people. Jesus gave himself fully to that ministry. Look, it's important to understand that like our great servant, we will not be effective at giving other people that which we're not receiving. In other words, we cannot effectively lead people to where we have not been or are at least heading to. And so like our great servant, we have got to awaken each morning and open our ear to to be as those who are taught so that we might move out and have the resources to sustain those who are weary with our words. But we've got to be reminded constantly that this is what the servant has done for us. In order to be effective in ministry, we've got to be ones who are being ministered to by Christ, our servant. So our call is similar to the servants, which is to cultivate closeness with God and to move out and rub off on others. In fact, the most valuable thing that you can give to your family and to your friends, to your coworkers, and to your neighbors, is your own personal holiness, your own personal connection with the Father. Oftentimes, you and I are so dry and weary because our debits exceed our credits when it comes to our spiritual account. What I mean by that is we are out there withdrawing and withdrawing, we're giving and we're giving, but never making any deposits. And that's a way that leads to spiritual bankruptcy. And the servant comes and he models for us what it looks like to replenish our spiritual account, to stay connected to the Father so that we might have a word to speak to sustain the weary. It's the first thing we see from our servant. Now let's move on and take a quicker look at where this kind of ministry led the servant as we consider the suffering servant. There's a progression we see in our passage as the servant speaks to others of God's power and of his grace and of his love. Not everyone likes what they hear. We see this highlighted in verse 6 of our passage. After spending years attempting to sustain those who are weary with the word, this is where it led the servant. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. 
I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. What we see here is that the servant does not turn away from suffering. We also see something that should shape our own expectations when it comes to ministry. And that is, if the message is going to be declared faithfully to our friends and our neighbors, you can expect that some aren't going to like what they hear. And it's exactly what the servant experienced in his ministry as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we see in the Gospels that the servant will endure anything as long as obedience demands it. The servant will endure anything as long as obedience demands it. The servant is suffering because of obedience, not because of rebellion. He didn't do something wrong. And this is so important for us to remember. In fact, if this truth isn't lodged deeply into our hearts that we suffer because of obedience, not because of something that we've done wrong, then you and I will quickly become disillusioned and disappointed as we follow Jesus and experience suffering. Jesus didn't come and suffer by accident. Jesus did not come and suffer because the original plan had failed. This was always plan A. He chose the way of suffering. It's the way it was always intended to be. Notice the verb in verse 6. I love it. It says the servant gave. It could also be translated offered. He came and he gave his beard and his cheeks. He came and gave his back. He didn't hide his face from the spit. He walked into opposition and suffering with eyes wide open. There's no place Jesus wouldn't go. There's no place, nothing that he wouldn't do to to care for weary people with the truth of God's grace. I like how Eugene Peterson translates verse six into modern English when he says this. I followed orders, stood there and took it while they beat me, held steady while they pulled out my beard, didn't dodge their insults, faced them as they spit in my face. The people who were originally receiving this from Isaiah would have heard the description of this servant as he comes back to it time and time again and thought, wow, this sounds like someone who knows what we're experiencing. This sounds like um, someone who knows what suffering means. He knows what heartache and disappointment feels like. And it would have been comforting to know that the servant could identify with them only with one huge difference. The servant did not deserve this treatment. The servant didn't do anything like you and I do to merit this suffering like God's people had. I love how John Stott puts it in his book. I'm using a lot of quotes this morning. I hope that's okay with you. If not, there's a comment card in the back that you can fill out. But in John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, he says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away 
In an imagination, I've turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. And our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. Look, the servant is one who knows our fallen world. One who comes to experience it with us. One who gives himself to sufferings so that we might experience life and love. We see from the servant that suffering is to be expected from a disciple. When we try to avoid or turn away from God-ordained suffering, what we're doing is we're rebelling against God on one hand, But on the other hand, we're diminishing our capacity to breathe life into others. To live and to speak for God is to invite suffering into our hearts and lives. We've got to know that. Ministry and discipleship means that we give ourselves for others, often at great cost. So, we see that the servant is set on giving himself to others to expend himself so that others might have life. And we notice in our final point, that he does this with great confidence, with great confidence. We see the confidence of the servant in verses seven, eight, and nine. The servant knows who is on his side. He knows who gives him help, and this makes the servant confident. It's the picture of someone who can't fail being on your side that allows you to take risks. It's funny, but in my mind, I was thinking this morning, and it's something like this. How great would it be if I could head down to the local YMCA this afternoon for a local pickup basketball game, and as I go to play, I get the chance to take LeBron James and Kevin Durant with me. Go and play, and I take them, and that would change some things, right? If they're with me, that would change some things. It would change the way I feel about taking the court. It would change the way that I'm able to take risks in the game. It would give me confidence that losing was not an option. I'd probably find myself talking a little bit more smack than normal to the opposing team. And it's silly, but it's the idea we see from these final three verses. We actually see the servant highlight who's on his side four times through these verses. We see it in verse 4, 5, 7, and 9. The servant has the Lord God on his side. The Lord God on his side, and it's important to know that when this title is used, you see the word Lord in all capital letters if you've got an English Bible in front of you. It's referring to the personal name that God gave his people back in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, Yahweh. And it's God's name that really highlights his power and his care and his ability to keep promises that he makes. The fact that the Lord God is on his side makes the servant bold. Makes him very bold in service and in love. The servant knows that God will vindicate him in the end. And so he says, bring it on. Throw everything you got. I've got the right man on my side. I cannot lose. And it gives him great confidence. It allows him to resolutely set out on his mission. It says, setting his face like flint to his calling. And knowing that we have the same powerful, caring, promise-keeping God on our side should change the way we think about ministry. Me, especially. 
because I have such a hard time with this. It should change the way we take risks in loving and serving others. It should change the way that we focus our time and our energy and our money. It should give us confidence because we know that losing is not an option so we can move out and take lots of risks as we seek to love and serve other people. What we see in Isaiah 50 is that the servant is the perfect disciple. He's the disciple that we were called to be. He lives the life that we were called to live and he comes and he takes the punishment that we deserved. He is our hope. He is the one that we look forward to this Advent season. He has come once living a perfect life of a disciple on our behalf. And we know that he's one day going to come again. But this time he's not going to come as a baby. He's not going to come in humility. He'll come in glory as a king, as a monarch to make all things new. And that should give us who are often weary, great hope this Advent season. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you are the disciple that we never could be. That where we have failed, you have come to set things right. And that you invite us to walk the path of a disciple, knowing that we can walk in complete confidence and freedom because you have offered us full forgiveness. We pray that we would cling to you as we seek to move out and minister to others. We pray that you would continue to replenish us in our spiritual accounts as we seek to go and expend our lives for others. And we pray that you would give us success in that mission. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.